It is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to those who celebrate that. Uh, or if you just celebrate love, whatever it is you're celebrating today, I bid you a happy celebration. Now, I'm going to talk about a couple of things. Uh, today is my mama's birthday, her earth birthday. She has transcended. I'm going to play this song for her real quick. Now, this ain't the blues. It is a, uh, how do you say, it's, it comes from the blues. It comes from old spirituals, and, and, and but it is the popular music, popular black music of this time. All right? So let me play this song real quick. This is for you, mama. Mm-hmm. Y'all know what this is about. That Motown era. Oh, man, I had to stop. Oh, it's playing again. Let me stop this. Because I end up playing this. It won't stop. There we go. Because, you know, I end up playing this the entire show. I get to the music quick. <laughs> so, in lieu of celebrating my mother, and before I even get to that, we have to honor for Black History Month and for just black contribution, African-American contribu contribution, American contribution, meaning indigenous contribution, this, that, and the third, the visual and soundtrack of blackness, right? Because when I hear that song, I, I, of course, the first thing I think about is my mother. Then I think about uh, growing up at a time where, you know, everybody in my house or the houses that I was frequent, frequenting played that. But I also think about Cooley High, right? And that kind of leads into what we're talking about this Sunday, okay? For those of you that's been on the journey with us since we've been doing this consistently, thank you. Those of you that just began to tune in, welcome. As you can see, the title of this is Ethnographic Folk Narrative, Ethnographic Black Folk Narrative as Revolution. And what do I mean by that? It may seem like I'm jumping around as I tell the story and, and, and talk to you all about this, but just first and foremost, remember, from the beginning of this broadcast a few weeks ago, I suggested that we should not document the saying, thank you very much. That was my beautiful wife bringing me my super reds. Hold on. Great source of energy, great taste. Anyway, I, I spoke about how we should go about celebrating black history, right? So with that, because we're still talking about Black History Month and how we can celebrate it. And then you also remember we spoke about um, the word obscure, and we also spoke about less known 
high contributions, right? Today, we're going to talk about a different mindset. And when I say different, this is not a new concept. This is not a new concept. Actually, this is a concept that's been active for a long time. Uh, At the turn of the century, it was active. Uh, It became extremely popular uh, for the 10-year span of 65 to 75 with the black arts movement. And then there's other people along the way that partook in, in this way of revolution, Using our documentation, using the arts, using our expression, right? Or those that platformed those of us that express through uh, traditional art, right? Now, how do, how do we get to this? I watched Judas and the Black Messiah last night with my family. Um, I'm a huge fan of to say the least, of Chairman Fred Hampton. Um, To be so young, right? And not only just command the respect, not only just organize the way he did, but the foresight. Martin Luther King, in his last days or years, started the Poor People's Party, and he began to do something similar as Fred Hampton. The difference is Fred Hampton, uh, as we say, he took it to the streets. Now, we know that the Honorable Reverend was on the streets, you know, and when I say on the streets, he, he, he galvanized marches and things like this. But the way Fred Hampton went about it, and mind you, this is information that most of us had prior to the movie. It just so happens that when my family and I watched this movie, I had to watch the movie. And I think they did a good job. Um, it, it, like, if any of you are familiar with Dick Gregory, I believe Dick Gregory would have been proud of this film because he's very vocal about how our um, those who uh, uh, contribute on a high level for the black community or black heritage or African-American people or liberation or revolution. He's very critical on how they're depicted in these films. And I thought they did a great job. But as I was watching this film, a lot of things went through my mind, right? Um, In regards to first and foremost, his foresight, like I was saying, to understand that there is power in numbers and that the, the bulk of us down here on the ground level regardless of ethnicity, uh, nationality, or even the classification that we've been known for as um, color, this color scheme that they've been doing, he understood, you know, those are devices utilized to to divide, conquer, and, and all of these things. And he, he really worked to bring these people together. And he wasn't afraid to go to the hardest of the hard. He wasn't afraid to go to the whitest of the whites. He wasn't afraid to go to the, the Latino community. Wherever it was, he went. And as I watched this film, and... um the honorable and beautiful woman that had his child, her character in the film told him 
quite a few things that resonated with me. And she also read him this poem and, and then went into, you know, how she felt, you know, and, and, and that got me to thinking. Um, it's the entire story, but, but what it got me to thinking was there are many roles in this, uh, for lack of a better term, fight for liberation, for justice, um, just to simply be uh, for for economic power and structure. There's just many, there's many roles to play. Everyone, well, I don't ever think there'll be another Fred Hampton. I'll just say that straight out the back. I don't think there'll ever be, oh, what's happening, bro? How you? Love you, bro. You caught all of y'all. Um, rude boy, I don't think there'll ever be a Fred Hampton again. I don't think there'll ever be a Malcolm X Martin. We can go down the line, right? However, even if there is someone who can, I wouldn't say fill those shoes, but are, 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 are reflective of how they went about and did things, right? That's just one aspect and not many people can fill these men and women's shoes. You see what I'm saying? So we have many roles that can lead to the same outcome. And one of those roles, and I really believe this as, as, as an ethnographer, um, as someone who doesn't just document, record, share, um, and platform, black folk narrative, but someone who actually performs black folk narrative, I have to say that a very revolutionary act is the the documentation, the holding of the scroll of the black folk narrative, uh, keeping it correct, the gatekeeper, so to speak, plural. And, and we can utilize ethnography, folklore, ethnomusicology in a revolutionary sense. Because a lot of times, and you know, our leaders of the past always said, if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. If you don't know who you are, then they'll tell you, well, we don't know who we are. We got a different name, right? And, and I'm not saying this maliciously or condescending, but what, what I am saying is a, a, a big message they've been telling us for over 100 years, right, was that we don't know who we are. We don't know where we came from. We have the oppressor's name. We have the oppressor's religion. So... If that is a fact, which I'm not saying it's not, what's happening, Brother Brock? But I'm just, just you know, hypothetically, if that's a fact, which I believe it is, if that's a fact, then that means the role of the ethnographer in our culture, in our community, is an extremely revolutionary act. And we should start looking at it as a revolutionary act. The, the, the role of a folklorist is a very revolutionary act, and we should start looking at it as a revolutionary act, right? The, the role of an ethnomusicologist, right? The role of black traditional music historian. These are all revolutionary tactics because when our leaders or, or when those who speak 
uh, power to truth in regards of the collective say, listen, our heritage, our history, our tradition has been erased. That's when us, those of us who either play the music, document the story, or what have you, can step up and say, wait, no, it wasn't. We got it. We got it. So now that we have it, and you have that, and then we have the soldiers and the this and the that, we have, we, now we're talking. Because even when you read the Bible, which is a very good example, the Bible, and I mentioned this before, is genealogy heavy. It speaks about the record of the people. And it speaks about how they all, all the tribes of Judah got together. What was it like two, uh, geez, 144,000 or something like this? They, they would all get together and read off the names of, of not just the tribes, but the sons and, and, and the grandsons and, and all of the lineage. That's ethnography. That's revolutionary to be able to be the holder of the scroll. We have many examples, right? And in different forms, we have these examples, now, before I get to the examples, why am I in this space and why do I take it so seriously and why do I present to you all the story of our people? Why do I fight to uh, correct the context or put it in the proper context, the story of the blues people, which is an American story? It's an American story that started well before 1619. Why do I take this very seriously? Why is this a calling, right? Not just to perform the music, which is, a, which is very important. Not just to talk about it, not just to break it down, but the entire story of the people and not, not the textbook story documented, or excuse me, written by someone with 6th, 7th, 8th, hand information I'll tell you a story in honor of my mother right today is her birth her earthly birthday and she has transcended so this this is another uh inspiration for today's broadcast when I was a little dude, and some of you who's been following me for a while or some of you who's been reading my work watching uh, the videos or even seen some of my performances of the Jack Dapper Blues experience. You may have heard this story before, but so bear with me. When I was a little dude, I was a PBS kid because my mother was a, a teacher, right? And I'm watching PBS as a real little cat, okay? And my mother was in the, um, this is summertime, I remember this like it was yesterday. My mother was in the kitchen making lunch. I could still hear the fan blowing because it was so hot. And this is before at least majority of us can afford um, air conditioners. So it was hot. The fan was making that noise, blowing hot air. And, and I'm watching this thing and I started yelling at the top of my lungs. I was fuming. I was angry. And my mother, I guess, 
not knowing what to expect comes running in the living room with the broom. She was ready to go to work. <laughs> and what ends up happening is she looks at me that she looks at the TV and I point to the TV and I'm telling her, you know, how mad I am and how much I hate them and all this stuff. Because what was on the TV was a documentary uh, about the civil rights movement. And they were showing, you know, black people getting beat. And I mean, don't get it wrong, because they like to show the beating. They don't like to show the fighting back part, right? And, and, and uh, matter of fact, I'll say it now, before, because I may forget. They don't like to tell us about the many revolts, you know, the, the many wars throughout the 1800s of what I call black Indians, so I could make the point so you understand they're melanated. Um, I don't think I have the book right here, but there's a book here that breaks down the different names or descriptions of the people who were found on the Americas, again, well before 1619, well before 1492. We're talking 1300s, 1200s, and before, where, where, where it was documented when people were coming to the Americas, they looked mahogany, they looked swarthy, they looked, you know, cop, all these different things, right? So, excuse me, anyway, so they don't like to show the fight back. They like to show the victim. So I'm looking at this, and I'm a little guy, and, and you know, at this time, there was a multitude of non-black people on television. Well, let's call it what it was. It was just white people on TV. You see one or two one-offs. Um, you had good times. You had what's happening. You had the Jeffersons. Before the Jeffersons, you had um, the Bunkers, which Maud was um, Edith's sister. So that's where Wheezy come from in George, right? Um you had Chico and the man, right? Um, what else? Um, I forget anything. Later on in the late 70s, I think early 80s, you had uh, different strokes. But see, now we talk about different, you see, we, we, we're still talking about a particular uh, version of the story, you see? So with that being said, the point I'm saying is there wasn't many black people on TV, one-offs, you know, it's not like you, you can you can go to any channel right now and see an entire cast of black people. You can go to a, uh, any channel, you can see an entire cast of Asians and so forth and, and so on. So at this time, when they showed black people on TV or when you went to school, because when I went to school, I'm in school post-civil rights. I'm in school post-civil rights. What does that mean? That means the people who didn't want my parents in particular schools and neighborhoods were, were my teachers. And this went on through high school. Okay, so when I'm this little guy, and I'm giving you this uh, backstory, this context, so you can understand why it angered me when I watched this on television. You see what I'm saying? As a little guy, I understood the story. It was a fight for freedom. It was a fight for rights. It was a fight to exist. But it burned me 
to continue to see every time they spoke about or showed about this fight to exist. Black folk was getting beat. They was getting hosed. Dogs were being sucked on them, sicked on them, however you say it. So I was fuming and I'm yelling at the TV. And when my mother realizes why I'm uh, in such a rage as a little guy, first thing she did was bust out laughing. <laughs> she busted out laughing, right? She gets me dressed. We go, you know, I mean, I was dressed, but, you know, she like, put your sneakers on, stuff like this. And then we go to the store, the bodega, right? She picks up, I think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess. I don't fully remember at the time. It's written down, so you can go to the website and see. But to my understanding, it was maybe three, two or three uh, composition notebooks and a pack of pins, right? So she tells me, you know, uh, I believe when we get back upstairs, because that would only make sense. So, I mean, she, we, we spoke as we walked because my building at, wasn't that far from the corner. You know what I mean? Uh, but she explains to me, take this. She gives me the notebook. She says, take this. And she gives me life, I guess, rules. And it's rules to a degree. And this goes back to there's different roles in this fight for existence, period. Because that's pretty much what it is. It's a fight for existence. Okay? So, so this is what starts my journey, pretty much. Right? So she goes, take this. And then she takes the pin, give me two, three pins, take this. She said, now, I understand what you saw made you angry. And it should. But there's some things you need to understand with this situation. She said, the first situation, the first thing to understand, everything and everyone black ain't good, and everything and everyone white ain't bad. That's number one. She said, because you more than likely will have more issues with your own people than with them. Which makes sense because New York was segregated. And the more I think about it, growing up in my day, you know, they it's it's been told, you know, segregation was over, this, that, and the third. But New York, my my life, New York was segregated. Okay? And, and, and through my school years, we were taught inadvertently, programmed inadvertently, structural, structural racism. And you would think, because, you know, I, I got Chris Rocked, I got bused to school. So you think, oh, it was only because he was in the school that I was predominantly white. But if you go back and look at the public schools that were predominantly black, which my mother was a lifelong, her career 
was was children and young folk education in the public school system. The lack of resources in black public schools at that time, I I, I don't. I don't even feel that I'd be exaggerating if I said it, it, it mirrored Mississippi up until maybe last year. Okay? So, she explains to me, back to the story, you thought I forgot. <laughs> she explains to me, after she says, not all black people and black things are good and not all white people and white things are bad, she explains to me next, don't be a loud mouth. What does this mean? You know, now I, I, I may have asked her that, or I may have just been looking at her and in my mind, like, what, what is she talking about? Don't be a loudmouth. She said, don't be a loudmouth. And she gave me a few examples of what she meant. One example, don't be a loudmouth because they will lead you into the fire. And when you turn around, they gone. It's one. Second, in regards of being alive, and now mind you, we have to understand that those of us who were born between sixty-four and seventy-four, our parents saw firsthand what we refer to as pulpit pimps. Culture hustlers, race baiters, they've seen this firsthand before it was on the internet. See, we see these things on YouTube and stuff, and it's entertainment, but but they were seeing this in the street where their friends were going to jail or getting beaten or or, or what have you because they were following behind these pulpit pimps these hustlers of culture and these race baiters. You know, and I get to understand that a lot more now as I see certain things. So she was, so she said, don't be a, a lot Then she goes, before you decide to be the voice of the people and step up and, and again, be a loud mouth in, in this sense, it wasn't condescending or, or, or a, a snide remark. It, it meant being the, 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 the voice of the people. You got to quantify and qualify the people that you're speaking up for because you would be putting yourself in the line of fire and be the only ones who gets murdered, gets imprisoned. And I'll say one thing about the Panthers. Out of the many people, like Malcolm was killed by his people. We know this. Martin was set up by his people. We know this. But the Panthers, up until I, I guess maybe the early 70s, outside of the informants and the plants, they really, really looked out for each other. That was very rare, you know. So, be careful of that. Then she goes on to say, I give you this pen, these pens and, and these notebooks because the most powerful weapon you ever have is the written word. 
She goes on to say, document everything. Because talk is cheap. You could tell somebody something and it'll be received in a multitude of ways. It'll be repeated in a multitude of ways. It could be utilized against you even if you didn't mean that. It could be erased. It could be forgotten. This, that, and the third. But if you document it, if you write it down, then it's law. That was the beginning of my journey. Now, this is not about me. I'm giving you this story because what I understand from that story, recollecting on that today as my family and I celebrate her birthday, as my family and I last night watched Judas and the Black Messiah, ethnographic black narrative the documentation of it the transmission of it is revolutionary most of you know the black arts movement amiri baraka gwendolyn brooks excuse me larry neal the honorable sonia sanchez nikki giovanni who most of us still to this day watch that fabulous conversation between Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin on YouTube. James Baldwin, right? So a couple of weeks ago, me and some great, 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 great uh, folklorists and ethnographers in the African-American folklore section group of the AFS had a conversation about ethnographic black folk narrative practitioners that aren't necessarily looked at as that. And James Baldwin came up, you know, Ralph Ellison came up and and so many others. James Baldwin, it, it was a force to be reckoned with, right? Still to this day. But the point I'm making without going into all, of, you know, not without repeating everything, you can go back and take a look at that if you're part of that group. The written documentation of our story is revolutionary and we need to start looking at it as such. Because then it won't be able to say, well, we was robbed of our history and our story. We don't have a history and story. Better yet, and we see this happen often, how the faces of our ancestors become refaced, replaced. How is that possible? Because if we understand ethnographic black folk narrative and the tools of the folklorists as being revolutionary, <laughs> you, you, you cannot replace the face of our ancestors. You know, one of my most favorite rappers out of Houston, Scarface, you know, I hope he's doing well. I haven't heard much about uh, the brother lately, but Scarface spoke about how at the time it's on my website go to jackdabbleblues.radio.tv it's on the website he spoke about how the 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 industry and the people that run it have 
the people this expression came, that came from looking like fools. He said, and, if, and, and he also said that as they make black rappers look worse and worse, they're highlighting white rappers, but allowing them to utilize the skills of an MC. So now it's like, yo, these dudes is nice. These dudes is nice. He then goes on to say, if we continue to allow that to happen, just like the blues, this is his exact words, just like the blues used to be Sun House and now it's Eric Clapton, hip hop will go from Big Daddy Kane and Rakim and, and, and Karis One to Eminem and all these other people. Michael Moore and all these other people. This is not saying that people can't partake in our traditional expression. That's not what I'm saying. And I just have to go on record to say that because some people, you know, they, they, they feel a way. They get emotional with this kind of talk. But what it's to say is if we're not careful just like everything else that comes out of our tradition, out of our heritage, out of our people will be refaced and replaced. Which again, is the purpose of the African-American folklorists. It's the purpose of Jack Dapper Blues. Heritage Preservation Foundation and the radio show, which <laughs> the radio show coming back, and I don't just mean the podcast and the interviews. We're going to be playing some blues, some black speeches, some songsters. You know what I'm saying? We're going to be so we're going to get to it. But if we do not understand the documentation of our heritage and tradition from us as being an act of revolution, we will continue to see our traditional behaviors, vernaculars, and expressions, or our monuments refaced and replaced. Look, I spoke about this brother and I speak about him often. You go to my YouTube channel and you'll see I have a five minute piece about him, and I believe the, the, the series is called African-American Folklorist Writers in the Blues. And I speak about John Wesley's work, right? If I'm not mistaken, within the last couple of weeks of, of broadcasting, I mentioned him and his family and, and, and their uh, uh, heavy, heavy contributions to our story. Why was a revolutionary? Well, he documented something called American Negro Songs, 230 folk songs and spirituals, religious and secular. And then he goes on to explain the culture of each group of black folk. Why is that important? So now, when we're talking about we have no history, we have no culture, we have no this, we don't know who we are and all this other garbage. And I have to say it, it's garbage because if you, 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 it's right here. There, there are people from us 
that has documented it and is revolutionary because now we have the confirmation of who we are, what we did. So everybody doesn't necessarily have to be on the front line. Everybody doesn't have to be a soldier. Right? Just like in a lot of these organizations, regardless to what it is, whether it's a black organization, uh, a white organization, a Latino organization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they have what you call minister of information. Um, what's the brother's name? I have the book over here. I can't, you know, y'all know I'm, I'm bad with names, but he was the secretary and minister of information in Philadelphia for one of the abolitionist um, organizations. He wrote a book called The Underground Railroad, and he was able to write that book because of being uh, the secretary of the organization and the minister of information. Um, secretary meaning the another way of PR person, the, 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 the person who, who is going around letting people know about their existence. And in being the person that was, I guess, on the ground talking to the people and maneuvering the people from one place to another, he was able to document the stories of of these families and some in some cases individuals that was on the move what they were experiencing you know I, i'll put the title of the book in the chat when i'm finished because i'll have to go over to my um library over here and get the book because i forget I, I forget the brother's name you know, but he worked with the Fort, he worked with the uh, Grimkeys. He worked with the Fortins, and 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 a lot of these folks don't have me pulling this up right now because I, I just might have to do it because I, I hate not knowing, remembering. Excuse me, because I do know I hate not remembering uh, names of people. But he documented the story. He documented the movement. He documented the experience of. These black folk, in some cases, you know, reclassified uh, natives that look, that was my complexion. He documented their story, period, right? And I say period because it, there's, different ver there's different parts of a story, but he documented the entire story. It was revolutionary. It was very revolutionary at that time because during the Underground Railroad um, um, era, for lack of a better term, folks was getting killed. Whether they were the folks helping or the folks escaping, folks were getting killed. They were getting jailed, they were, all types of things. So it, it was revolutionary for him to take an ethnographic uh, 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 way of detailing and documenting what was going on at that time for us today. William Still, I believe his name is. I think his name just came to me. William Still. You see what I'm saying? Again, you, you know what I always speak of. Document your people. Document your people. 
story, the behavior. That's revolutionary. And, and, and I'm, I'm very adamant about this because everybody is not a soldier. Everybody's not a general. Everybody is not a frontliner. So then you'll say, well, where, where can I fit in? Or better yet, what can I, what can I contribute? This is what you can contribute because the tools of the ethnographer, the tools of the folklorist is revolutionary. If it's utilized to get the story accurate, or to tell the story accurate. See, it's been so many times where our story, but yet, I don't say so many times. It is more mainstream and popular for others to tell our story. And then you have a situation where uh, historians tend to look at the folklore of a a, a culture or a people as fairy tale, as something that may not necessarily be true as a legend, you know, but if you speak to the people, now not all, you know, sacred is different things, but the, the point I'm making is what makes a textbook written by McGraw-Hill about our story more official is in the documents. And when I say documents, I don't mean it as such a formal thing. It could be, uh, do I have a, it, it could be something like that. What makes their textbooks more official and legitimate than the documentation of a people by those people. That's why it's revolutionary. Now look, there's a um, a dude I met uh, some years ago when I was working at a speakeasy, and um, he was explaining to me that his grandparents—I don't remember if it was both of them, which one it was. They, he inherited the handwritten documents of their experience through the Holocaust. You know, and just off the top of my head, I was like, man, you could make a lot of money with that. And he was like, nah, man, I can't sell this. You know, when I have kids, I'm giving it to them so they can know the story. I said, you know, you're right. You're right. We have to start thinking of ethnography as a res revolutionary act. Amiri Baraka proved that, no? With the black arts movement, with the centers, Jamal Joseph. We can go down a list of people. I mean, even, um, I'm trying to think of his name, the brother who wrote The Spook Who Sat By The Door. We can, we can, we can, we can name a whole bunch of, Richard Wright, we can name a whole bunch of people. We have to understand that these are revolutionary acts. And don't 
uh, don't be afraid to put the pen to the paper or in this day and age, uh, hit, hit, hit your keyboard. And as for usual, I always tell you that you can always submit your your writings and things to, to the African-American folklore, whether it is the print newspaper or the website. Okay? So yeah, man, that's just what I want to talk to y'all about. Ethnographic black folk narrative as revolution, because it is. It is revolutionary to tell your own story. And if you don't think so, take a look at it. Matter of fact, let's talk about, there was another um, excerpt I recently saw from James Baldwin, and he explains how in the schools, the schools were teaching us, they were educating us based on white Western Europe ideology, history, or their version of history, better yet, their version of history. Why is that a problem? Not because they're white or from Europe. It is a problem because what happens is the truth of your people, you you wouldn't know if you only allow yourself to be indoctrinated by the society that you're pretty much the descendants of a prisoner of war. So he spoke about how his his going and finding information on his own gave him a better understanding. And I mean, for for that matter, that, that was my experience. So many of us, right, our experience was when we began to say something's not adding up, and then we went on to start doing our own research and started finding out what was left out of those textbooks. When we started speaking to grandma, grandpa, great-grandma, great-grandpa, uncle, parents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and started finding out that don't match what's in those textbooks. So it is a revolutionary act to document your people. It is a revolutionary act to document your narrative. That way, you won't be indoctrinated with a enslaved mind state. That way, when someone's telling you you ain't got a history, you can say, oh, 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 wait a minute. Like Schomburg, Alphonse Schomburg. Do, do you guys know the story of him? What made him seek so much black literature? When he was a kid, uh, was it in Cuba? Yeah. He was told uh, they were doing a, he was in school and they were doing a class project. And the teacher told him, go pair up with the white student because your people have no history. So he went on a mission to prove this lady wrong. That was revolutionary. 
if you make music, if you make the blues, if you uh, MC, whatever it is, this is revolutionary acts of documenting our story. In some cases, and you know, we we have to, and that's something we want to talk about that another time. But it, you know, as a performer, as an entertainer, every it's not just about. Uh, being the the bearer of tradition because there there were pop stars, there are pop stars. There are people who 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 just want to be great musicians, and they speak about different life experiences, but maybe not to be the holder of the scroll. Maybe just to entertain you. And then there are others like myself, and so many that do it to be the holder of the scroll and the tradition bearers. So we, we there, there is a difference and we, we have to acknowledge that difference. So when someone says, well, I, you know, I, I don't, they, I've played the blues, but I'm not a bluesman, you know, and they're black and they're, 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 they're working to be a pop star or what have you, we, we should not be upset. They, they, they kept it a, a hundred, they kept it a buck. We should be more upset if they're not playing the blues and they're saying they're playing the blues, right? So we'll, we'll talk about that more another time. Going back to why I bring up music, because again, this is another revolutionary act of, of transmission of our heritage, of documenting. That's why I, you see my shirts. Blues music is black history. You want to know what our story is. If you wasn't there and you're not connected to no one of that age group and you want to know what was going on at that time with black folk, go listen to these songs. It is the documentation of our people. You know? There's black people who think blues is slave music. I'm not, you know, I'm not breaking on them. I'm just merely saying there is a multitude of people who don't even understand what the blues is, what it meant, and of, of how it, 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 it galvanized, where it galvanized. Why is it the story of our people? Why is it the foundation of American music and nowhere else? But everybody from the British invasion and around the world who was repackaged and brought back to America playing this music all said, but this, this, this comes from you. And not you as in the white audience, but it comes from the American country. You got to ask some questions. Because if it didn't come from America, and if it wasn't the story of black people, why are overseas people who are playing it saying it came from here? From the black folk y'all don't like. So that's ethnographic black folk narrative as revolution. I can go down a list of, of other artists, but I'm not going to hold y'all too much longer. I, I just want y'all to understand 
that there are so many ways to contribute that are revolutionary. Why you think there's certain books you can't find or you have to go to specific bookstores to find it? Why do you think there, there's like a shortage of black bookstores? That's why I love Sisters Uptown. They're holding it down. Because the documented word is revolutionary. All right? So get back to your ladies and your family. Enjoy them. I'm going to go back with my family and honor our matriarch who instilled so many things in all of us here in the Pearly household and so many others. One of the reasons why we work so hard because it is a calling what we're doing. Mind you, we still got Skinny Brew Keto Coffee. We got Skinny uh, skinny Tea and Keto Tea. We got Super Reds. For those looking to lose weight, for those that, you, you know, get your stomach in, we got wraps. We got a whole bunch of things. And don't forget about our merch, the sweatshirts, the T-shirts, the, the mugs, the mouse pads, and everything, okay? Also, we are still raising funds for the African-American Folklorist newspaper. I will put the link in the, in, in, in the, in the chat area, in the comment section. August 23rd, The Benefit Concert with some real blues, folks. So you want to get them real blues. And guess what? Very soon. And, and, and I want to say it right now, but I'm not going to. Jack Dapper Blues Radio going to be playing them blues again. And y'all going to be blues with me. And, and we're going to be having these conversations. But we're going to have these conversations mixed in with some heavy, heavy blues, baby. All right, so y'all enjoy. Don't drink too much. Don't drink too little. God bless.